Welcome to Independence, the FIEC podcast. My name's Phil Topham, Executive Director of the FIEC, and it's time for our dive into the news. Uh, And with me as ever is John Stevens, our National Director. Hello, John. Hi, Phil. And Adrian Reynolds, our Head of National Ministries. Hello, Adrian. Hello, and big news, Phil. Go on. We've not been cancelled by Spotify. Indeed, we are still here. We still have our multi-million dollar deal with Spotify, unlike another podcast. I don't know. Uh, Unlike another podcast that has uh, gone off uh, Spotify in this past couple of weeks. Perhaps if we were more banal, we might get cancelled. Indeed, indeed, more listeners. Uh, very good. Let, let's start with what we've been up to, as we, we tend to do. Uh, John, you and I were up in Sheffield uh, this past weekend. Just tell us uh, where, where you were and what you were doing. Yeah, we were preaching at special searches for church uh, services for kind of New Hope Christian Church, which is an FIEC church, joined FIEC a number of years ago. It's a black majority church in Sheffield. The majority of the congregation come from Congo or Burundi or Rwanda. Mm. And it was a really great weekend because they've appointed a new pastor to lead the church there. We've been seeking to help them as a church to become more established. Um, Um, Jackson um, is a member of the church. He's visited us here at the FIEC offices. He's been appointed as pastor of the church, and we were both there to preach and join in the celebrations. Non-English speaking, how did you get on with that, John? Well, uh, they did translate parts of the service for me, so I knew what was happening. But no, I mean, obviously, local languages, they speak a variety of languages, their own language, French, uh, English. It's interesting, um, the older generation still speak mainly the local language. The kind of young people are being brought up in a British context and speak English. So they're a church that's navigating the challenge of being sort of um, multi-generational with diff- different language skills. I find yeah. it quite helpful being translated because I was yeah. going through my sermon thinking, oh, that's very repetitive and editing it as I was preaching as they were translating it next to me. So yeah, maybe there's a lesson I'm there I'm sure well. you were both a real it help was, to them. It was so yeah. encouraging yeah. to me just to see their joy in the Lord. Yeah. I think that yeah. is so evident that even if you can't actually understand what they're singing, that is just shown on, on the face. And for me, it was just a reminder that so many things we think in our church life or what is right or biblically mandated are actually just cultural ways of doing things. Absolutely. The basics are the same, preaching, reading the Bible, praying, singing. But the way that that is done, how people engage just varies massively. And there's nothing like going into a church context that's totally different from your own to make you realise that a lot of things that you assume or an outworking of the Bible are actually nothing more than an outworking of your culture. It was brilliant and it was uplifting, wasn't mm, it? Absolutely. So, yeah, really good to, to worship with them. And Adrian, you've been working on something called the Philip Project. Yes, yeah, so Philip Project is part of Friends International. Um, lots of little um, Philip Projects around the country, working with international students, really doing a very sort of basic Bible overview, how to read the Bible well, uh, with a few really to them returning to home countries, having a bit of good grounding. Um, un- under them. And um, I've been doing it for well, for years and years, actually. Mm. Um, first in London, um, probably about 20 years I've been doing it in London and now doing it in Nottingham. So I was in Nottingham with a, with a bunch of students, international students, and just reminded, um, I, it was based at Cornerstone, but just reminded being at Cornerstone and a little bit earlier this week, being um, at Beeston Free Church, just reminded the large numbers of international students that our mm. universities have. And the great opportunity that is both to minister to those who are believers who are coming over into this context, but also to reach people who are not yet Christians, who perhaps might not hear the gospel in any other context at this very, very formative point of life uh, to have the opportunity to share the gospel with them. So it's just it's just a reminder that actually work amongst international students um, going on up and down the land in many FIC churches, really valuable work. I'm thinking of internationals and the diaspora community and the church you and I were at the weekend in Sheffield. John reminds us that we've the 75th anniversary of, of the Windrush generation uh, this week. What, what, what kind of lessons can we learn f- from that anniversary? 
Yeah, well, the Windrush generation, that refers to the kind of the ship that brought the first migrants to the UK from uh, the Caribbean, from what were then British colonies. It was the beginning of a sort of a migration from the empire to um, uh, the UK. So that stage, of course, Britain continued to be an imperial power. Uh, actually, under the law at that stage, everybody who was a citizen of the empire had the right to come and live in Britain. But in um, the early 1950s, uh, when this began to sort of happen, there was only about 0.1% of the population that were from an ethnic minority um, in the UK. And things then rapidly changed as uh, people from the, the empire came to the UK, actually invited. Many were asked to come because there was a kind of a labor crisis. There was a need for people to come and do jobs. There was full employment. So people came to the UK, um, uh, uh, invited legal migrants um, who were coming to uh, kind of work. And that began to radically transform um, the country. Today, we're 14% of the population comes from an, an ethnic minority. And I think having listened to the stories of those who came, they came with great hopes of how they would be welcomed by the country that they saw as being the mother country of mm. the empire. And yet, actually, in many instances, what they found was appalling racism, that as they kind of came to the UK, they weren't welcomed, they weren't able to find housing, um, they were discriminated against, um, uh, racist language was used, um, uh, people were threatened that there was this new community. So uh, at one level, I think it's a very kind of discouraging period. And not in, just in, in society, yeah, was it? That church was in, as well. Church, yeah. yeah, I mean, many of those who came from the Afro-Caribbean were committed Christians. Um, they came looking to join British churches and they were turned away because people didn't want to welcome them. They looked down on them. They didn't want to change the way that they did things. That led to the establishment of um, sort of black denominations and churches um, around the country, which today are thriving and have a huge role to play in the, the life and the gospel, gospel community of the UK. So actually suddenly being challenged by having people from the empire come and live um, in Britain exposed the incipient racism mm -hmm. of much of um, society. I mean, it's astonishing that it wasn't really until 1965 that there was protection against racism from people uh, kind of in the UK. So the kind of, you know, signs in sort of a housing that's in no blacks, the, the fact that you kind of didn't have the right to access to public places, uh, uh, absolutely extraordinary that it's only in 1965 that that protection was introduced. It's only in 1968 that people enjoyed protection in, in employment. So society radically changed and had to recognise uh, that there was that racism and that it couldn't be tolerated. And I guess that process has been ongoing and has continued and is continuing as we've, mm. we've continued to sort of see people come from a, a wide variety of different places around the world to come and work um, uh, in Britain. And of course, you have second, third, fourth and fifth generations who are now uh, sort of born in the UK, who are thoroughly British. And it has just totally changed um, our nation, our character, what it means to be uh, kind of British. Um, and that all began um, 75 years ago. And um, it is good for us, I think, as Christians, just to reflect on this and especially on um, not just to rejoice in the way that the country has changed for the better. I mean, there are still issues, but it, it is better than it used to be. Mm. I think that's pretty clear when you read some of the stories. Um, but also to rejoice in the way I think the church has been impacted. We're reflecting on the church in Sheffield and just seeing how actually um, sort of that sort of white middle class um, historic Christianity from the UK is no longer the majority view around the world. So I think you're beginning to see that trickle into churches, which I think is is great encouragement. But we also need to be honest about our past. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, we we can, uh, this is obviously a live debate, isn't it, what exactly you do with the past. But I think as Christians, at least, we've got to be honest about the past. We've got to reflect on it carefully. And we've got to make sure we don't make the same mistakes over and over again, mm -hmm. I think. We had a um, seminar last week at church here. We'll put the link maybe in the show notes um, you need a strong pot of coffee for a, a, an hour and a half, but it was a good a good hour and a half together, reflecting on re just on racism, 
um, what the Bible has to teach about it, how we've got to where we've got to. And I think there's lots to rejoice in. There's also lots to repent of. Mm. And um, we've got to be clear about that. And, and also just in this last week, actually, a book's been published. I forget the author's name. John might remember it, but I've, I've forgotten it, I'm afraid, called We're Not America. Just reflecting that actually the racism that has blighted the UK is not quite the same as the racism that has blighted America. And we've got to be careful of introducing those overseas models. And so it, actually inadvertently ignoring our own problems and just bringing in new ones, which is quite an interesting um, idea to think through. So I think we have got to think clearly as Christians. And the gospel allows us to do that because there is forgiveness, there is reconciliation. So we can think honestly about the past. And um, we can reflect on what we've got wrong and make sure that we don't make those mistakes with the, with the Lord's help in the future. It's whether what that difference is that um, in the States, most of the African-American population were slaves who were transported to the States into, into the country. Most of the migration to the UK has been willing and voluntary. Mm. But we shouldn't forget that actually Britain did practice slavery. We can think yes, that that's indeed. an American indeed. issue. Actually, um, uh, sort of Britain transported huge numbers of um, Africans to the Caribbean to work on sugar plantations. So, um, it, it, in a sense, it was off our shores, but it was just exactly yes. the same. And as... the fact that Christians were instrumental in the abolition of the yeah. slave trade doesn't kind of, um, you know, doesn't doesn't negate what went before that. Absolutely, and Christians justified slavery on a whole variety indeed. of simply yeah, appalling indeed. reasons, which yeah. we kind of unpack yeah. in that kind of um, yeah. session. So, I think I think we need to face up to our history. Um, it also reflects on the present that today we have large migration to the UK, something like 600,000 net migration a year. Um, uh, uh, and most of that is legal migration. And the reasons are, are almost identical, that there is a massive employment need and people are having to come in from um, around the world. It was from Europe. It's now from non-European contexts. In a sense, that's very similar to the situation in the 1940s and the 1950s. And again, um, there is a hostility on the part of um, a section of the population towards those migrants who are coming perfectly legally to be able to, to, to do jobs. And we must remember that the gospel is all about reconciling and bringing people together from a diversity of different kind of cultures, nations, ethnicities. That's what we need to be demonstrating and practicing. Uh, just linked to that, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, we talked uh, about the new laws on homosexuality in Uganda. Interestingly, that's been linked to colonialism, hasn't it, this last few days? John, just walk us through what's been said about that and, and how we, we should respond yeah. to it. Well, we talked about that on our last podcast in Uganda. Some new laws have been introduced that have introduced sort of harsher penalties for homosexual behaviour, um, including for consensual adult homosexual um, uh, kind of activity. Um, that was supported um, uh, by the um, Archbishop of the Anglican Church in, in, in Uganda. And that, that's prompted um, a reaction to those who um, feel that the Bible doesn't say that, that we should be imposing criminalisation of homosexuality, even more so kind of harsh penalties for, for homosexuality. The Archbishop of Canterbury responded by pointing to kind of resolutions of the Church of England at its Lambeth conferences in which, um, whilst upholding the traditional biblical teaching about sex being only for sort of men and women within marriage, at the same time wanted to sort of uh, avoid uh, stigmatizing people who were kind of uh, homosexual um, and mistreating them, um, uh, homophobia. And he was arguing that this kind of support from the Archbishop of Uganda was inconsistent with that kind of um, Anglican um, position. Um, since then, um, the um, Archbishop of Uganda has responded effectively saying, Justin Welby has no moral authority to speak on that issue because of his support for blessing same-sex marriages and his leadership of global Anglicanism is kind of being called into question and rejected by the GAFCON movement. And uh, GAFCON has issued a statement, again, to similar effect in um, support of the Archbishop of um, Uganda. 
But it's been interesting how other evangelicals have been responding. So here in the UK, the Church of England Evangelical Council, which is the largest kind of body representing evangelicals within the Church of England, has issued a statement saying that they oppose the criminalization of consenting gay relationships. Um, in Sydney, the um, sort of Diocese of Sydney, which is one of the most conservative Anglican dioceses around the world, and the Archbishop of Sydney is a, a vice chair of GAFCON, they have issued a statement in which the Archbishop of Sydney has said that um, they do not support the criminalization of, of homosexuality. So there's obviously a debate going on there amongst those who are part of the global Anglican um, sort of uh, movement. And again, um, the Ugandan archbishop has said that this is an example of kind of Western imperialism, that it's trying to impose a, a Western view on homosexual, of homosexuality on a kind of Uganda and, and majority world Christians. Now, at one level, that's an understandable concern. But I think those who feel that criminalization is not right are not simply trying to impose some Western view that is supporting kind of homosexuality as a behavior and as a lifestyle. All those who've spoken, Church of England, Evangelical Council, Archbishop of Sydney, are quite clear that they think that practicing homosexual relationships are sinful. The church should not advocate or support or bless or permit those um, kind of relationships. Their argument about criminalization is actually a biblical argument. And it actually raises the, the, the difficulty in the world at the moment. If, if, if an argument is made that appears to come from Western Christians, that can easily be dismissed as being mere colonialism. But actually, it's really about saying, uh, this is what the Bible teaches. And those who believe that, of course, think that has universal effect. The moral teaching of the Bible, the ethical standards of the Bible are not culturally located. So how do we navigate that? That's really difficult, isn't it? Well, I think we need to navigate it with some humility, um, and, uh, but I don't think we should simply dismiss these kinds of arguments simply on the basis that they are reflections of either Western or non-Western culture. Within the Christian community and the church, this ought to be a matter of seeking to discern what the Bible teaches and what the Bible demands for how we behave. And in some ways, the Lambeth Declaration that sort of um, uh, much of this argument is about does that by, on the one hand, saying that sort of homosexual relationships um, aren't what God um, has established and aren't appropriate in the church, whilst at the same time wanting to avoid homophobia within, within society. That is a kind of a, a biblical position that was adopted for the universal worldwide Anglican church. So yes, I think in our culture at the moment, there's a great danger of sort of saying that only some people can speak on issues, um, uh, that, that kind of these sorts of issues of morality are somehow culturally located, whereas, whereas in fact, we, we believe biblically that God has spoken these things for the benefit of people everywhere, that this is, is kind of universal to humanity. Um, and I think we, we need to recognise that that is the sort of debate that ought to be taking place. Another argument of this is, is that some people have been arguing, well, it's not wrong to criminalise homosexual behaviour because that's not criminalising homosexuality and drawing a distinction between those. But again, I think Church of England Council, Diocese of Sydney, doesn't really accept that distinction. The idea that it's legitimate to simply say to a person, we're not criminalizing homosexuality, we're just saying you can't practice. It, 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 they've argued that that's not a viable kind of distinction and position. Mm. Well, let's move on. Um, other news that's been around these last couple of weeks, a devastating story uh, last week of a 44-year-old woman um, jailed for taking medication to end her pregnancy but, but between somewhere between the period of 32 and 34 weeks. It's just, there's no good angle to this as far as I can see. My twin nieces were born at 29 weeks, now perfectly healthy five-year-old girls. Um, it's widened the debate on abortion and healthcare. Of course, it's been seized upon by, by pro-choice groups to say it's unacceptable uh, that she was jailed. 
it's bound to have pastoral implications. It's a devastating from every angle, this story, well, it, isn't it? It is. I, um, just before we launch in, I think we need to say we probably don't have all the facts. Mm. So we, um, I, I think it, the facts of law are fairly clear in this case. John can speak about those in a moment. Um, and I think actually the, the judge was very clear in this particular ruling that the facts of law are very clear. Um, so actually, in, in in many ways, that becomes a question about is the law right or not, and we can we can opine on that. Um, but even though this case has been very widely publicised, there's been lots of information on it. I still think in some of these cases we don't necessarily know everything. Totally we don't agree. know the person's yeah, mental state, the situation. And, and yeah. So I, th I think we've got to be careful about um, what we say about this particular person. We weren't there in court, but I think we can talk about the case in general and whether the law is right or not. And of course, one of the great accusations that's made in this case is that we're relying on a, a law that was 150 years old or something. Um, that it's actually, more detailed than that, though, isn't it? It, it, it is more it detailed was, than it that. It was pills I, sent in the post. It was all yeah, that goes with um, that. Yes, I think that's right. So, I mean, the, what happened is the woman um, basically deceived the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, BPAS, um, by claiming that she was less pregnant than she actually was, um, that there was a law passed during lockdown that said, um, pills could be delivered by post, abortion pills could be delivered by post, um, but you had to be under a certain um, state of pregnancy at a number of uh, uh, weeks um, into pregnancy to do that. And she was well over that limit. And in fact, well over the limit for any mm. legal abortion in normal circumstances. So, um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of questions that, that, that are raised. I, I think the first question is, was it right that she was jailed? Um, and there's quite a lot of um, volume on that. So you've got everything from the people on the on the very left, perhaps saying, "Well, this is just an indication that the abortion law is ridiculous, and it should be, you know, any any length of time, um, abortion should be legal." You've got a group on the right hand side saying, "No, actually, um, it's right to jail her, and in fact, we should go further back." I'm just talking about society in general. Then you've got a quite a large group in the middle who are saying, "No, um, abortion should be made possible," but actually, in this case, she did break the law. She knowingly, it would appear, broke the law, knew what she was doing, and so actually, a custodial sentence. Certainly a guilty verdict is appropriate in a custodial sentence too. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And obviously, we have to say that the judge is the one who listened to all of the circumstances, yeah. heard all of the evidence. I and mean, there was some evidence that she had searched on the internet, knowing that she was going to kill a baby, knowing that it was illegal. She hadn't pleaded kind of guilty. So that's all part of the context of sentencing. And of course, she would have the right to appeal against the sentence if this were an inappropriate um, sentence sentence for what um, uh, sort of she was con convicted of. Um, I, I mean, I think... It, it seems to me that it does reveal um, and has revealed kind of the, the variety of opinions on abortion um, in the country. And effectively, it's revealed kind of three positions that people hold. Obviously, on the one hand, there is the, the position of people who believe that life starts at conception and there should be no place for abortion. That's the, the most commonly held evangelical Christian mm, yep. kind of um, uh, position. Um, then there are the people who have clearly got the view that actually a woman ought to be able to um, abort her child right up until the very right end of turn, pregnancy yeah, without yeah. any consequences. That the argument is, in a sense, it's entirely the woman's choice because the baby is in her. She has complete autonomy and control over it. If she doesn't want the baby, that should be absolutely her right. And that almost irrespective of the fact that this would have been a, a viable baby if it had been born at that age, the, the woman is entitled to completely control her, her body in those um, circumstances. That's a relatively small number of people. And I think that argument is often bound up with if we don't allow this, then actually mm. what they see as the right to abortion will simply be restricted. 
I think what's interesting is in this case, it's been really difficult for the people in the middle, those who are essentially pro-abortion but want some kinds of limits yeah. to abortion. Yeah. Which is a much larger um, group than I probably assumed yeah, um, existed. Absolutely. So yeah. um, I think what's most struck me is in the kind of the press, the commentators, people who are basically pro-abortion, finding that they can't defend this woman's behavior in this sort of situation. So whether it be kind of Rod Little, whether it be Camilla Long, um, uh, whether it be some writers in The Guardian, um, in The Telegraph, you've had completely opposing views with one person saying it's absolutely right that she's been in prison, somebody else saying that this is absolutely terrible and, and awful. Because they're wrestling with the fact that everybody knows that a, a, a kind of a child at the age of 32 to 34 weeks in the womb has a very high chance of surviving. Yeah. Um, I mean, actually, a, a baby at 26 weeks has a jolly good chance of surviving with with modern kind of medicine. So it's undeniable that what's happening here is that a viable baby that mm. could exist outside of the mother is is being killed. So even those who are, in a sense, in favour of abortion up to a period of time, recognise that this is an appalling act that's been kind of conducted, and it's not a good case from which to argue for um, kind of abortion. Uh, kind of rights. Um, that's part, I think, of a bigger picture, which seems to be a changing attitude in society towards abortion. That um, uh, although within the British population at the moment, there is a general support for the availability of, uh, of abortion, there's also a, a kind of a growing move towards abortion being more restricted in terms of the time period in which abortion is available. I think that that's basically because of medical science scans that have revealed the reality of um, what, a, what a baby is in, in, in the womb. There are some cogent arguments that, that are now saying seven weeks is about the limit because that's the point at which the fetus, they believe, becomes sentient and capable of kind of feeling. So that there's, an, interestingly, a totally secular debate in relation to um, a, abortion, which is all focusing on viability, but also what does it actually mean to be human and at what point do you acquire kind of rights? So the debate is shifting more in favour of the Christian position. What are the morals, John? Just, just help me with this as I think through it. Because actually, um, as, as Christians, we want there to be quite significantly more severe restrictions at, at worst, at best, a ban on abortion. Um, we, we might hear, for example, of a campaign in Parliament which is to reduce the abortion limit by one week, let's say, or by two weeks. Should we be kind of full out campaigning for that is isn't that somehow kind of giving up on our you know our, our ultimate destination or is it okay to have these sort of um you know points that actually are, are partial victories but not total victories or well, we might go back to the slave issue and the first victory was the abolition of the slave trade which took yeah. place a long period of time before the abolition mm. in british colonies of slavery yes in fact well, so, william of um, hardly uh, saw the latter did he? he was just on his deathbed yeah, really when the latter at one level we are dealing with a culture and a society that has taken a view um you know there are something like 230,000 abortions per uh, kind of year um, it's unlikely that our society, and we live in a democratic society, is going to suddenly change its mind on abortion kind of um, overnight. So I think there's a multifaceted strategy um, here. It's not wrong to want to seek, seek to reduce the numbers of abortions. And in a secular society, probably the best way to do that at the moment is to try to persuade people that the time limits for abortion are too long. That, of course, is part of a bigger argument about um, uh, whether the, 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 the fetus is, is a human being yeah, who has yeah, rights. Yeah, um, yeah. At one level, that's a massive argument to be won um, for people. I think that is founded on some religious convictions about what it mean, means to be human, which are mm. totally different from um, materialist, evolutionist understandings of, of what mm. human, human beings are. So there's, there's a multifaceted um, kind of range of issues. I mean, my mm. suspicion is that abortion would not be 
um, uh, sort of abolished and banned until there is a very significant revival of people who believe yeah. that yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, actually the child is from the very moment of conception created in, in mm-hmm. the image of God. And to some extent, we shouldn't forget that slavery was abolished off, in many ways, the backs of the yeah. late kind of 18th century That's revivals. Right. Yeah. And it was often yeah. Christian groups, but it was the penetration of the gospel that changed public mm-hmm. opinion that led to slavery being abolished. And actually, it was immensely costly slavery for the British in terms of the loss of revenue, the compensation that was paid. It was a massive economic hit, but people had been persuaded that it was the right thing to do, and the gospel had a huge part to play in that. So I don't don't think we are likely to transform the kind of the public attitude towards abortion unless there was something like that that happened. So every victory is a victory. Every victory is a victory, but I think we've got to be careful not to overhype them um, and and not to to put it in a proper perspective of that, that kind of bigger kind of campaign and not to lose the fact that only if people come to be Christians who believe the Bible are they actually going to have a, a change of heart. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Let's talk about Boris Johnson. Oh, can we? Our erstwhile Prime Minister. You know I love that. Um, yeah, so, so um, Boris Johnson, he's been found to have misled Parliament over his lockdown parties. He would have been suspended 90 days were he still an MP from Parliament. I mean, it's an extraordinary um, outcome, isn't it? So we we've, we saw all the pictures of the parties in Downing Street. I mean, my conclusion uh, really is that this was a man who was making up a set of rules for the country to follow, but then simply not following them himself. Am I wrong to assume that? A little bit. Go on. Well, again, we don't... Convince me otherwise. We don't have all the facts. Um, I I think the government was working, it seems to me, very hard. Adrian, we were all working hard. We weren't having parties. On managing a kind of a difficult situation in a a not very conducive work environment for all sorts of social distancing. So I I think, um, yeah, it it seems to me... Um, I've read the report. And I, I mean, I think he's, um, yeah, he's guilty. <laughs> but I, I just want to cut them a little slack, I think. I, I mean, I, I we, we have taken that whole period of time, the lockdown, where I tried to keep the rules very carefully. But I know plenty of people who didn't. And um, I, I just think we've got to be careful looking back on what was a unique time, really, in our politics and in our society and kind of looking at it through a lens that now everything appears very clear, where actually it was quite opaque at the time. Nevertheless... But the rules uh, weren't opaque. Well, there was some There was some uh, for business and what was required for business use. There was some variability around the edges. So, I, yeah. I mean, I think... Um, I'm not a not particularly a Boris fan. Um, I, I think the lessons for us as leadership are not so much about looking back and saying, was he, was he guilty or not, but reflecting on the kind of leaders that we have. Mm. Um, I, I think in this particular case, what you see with Boris is someone who um, has to be in control of the narrative. Um, I, I think what's become very clear is um, he wasn't willing to put himself before the scrutiny of Parliament, having been before the committee. Which Once, is why he resigned as an MP. Which is why it seems to me he resigned as an MP. Um, he's essentially telling his friends not to bother turning up and voting or not to not to vote against because he still wants to be in control of the narrative. I, I think what we're beginning to see is less of a clown and more of someone who is quite manipulative or likes to be in control of an agenda. And that, I think, is a very ugly characteristic in a leader. 
and one for us to avoid and just to be very aware of. But I'm, I'm slightly wary of throwing stones, I have to admit. Okay, fair enough. Well, you're more generous than I. John, what, what's your take on it? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, well, the video that came out this weekend of people Ex- at the Conservative Party headquarters partying um, when you weren't allowed to gather indoors, dancing, eating uh, food. And I think just what we're saying is days before they even clamped down on the yeah. five days of freedom over that Christmas break. So, so that is shocking. But it, Boris Johnson, of course, wasn't there. So I think there are two different things to be differentiated here. There's the break, the breaking of lockdown rules, which was investigated by Sue Gray, the Metropolitan Police. A couple of fines were issued for the the events. There was obviously some there's some grayness, some argument about whether or not these were genuinely work gatherings. Um, uh, there, that that's been his his defence. So there's the there's the events in Downing Street. But actually, of course, what the the the, the, the Parliamentary Privileges Committee has accused him of is actually lying to Parliament. Mm. And actually, it's his categorical statements that rules and guidance were followed, that he gave that assurance to Parliament. I think the most damning thing is his own civil servants were advising him that he couldn't say that, that that wasn't a true and accurate reflection of what what had happened. So actually, it's officials who warned him that he could not say that. And yet he did. And within our parliamentary system, lying to Parliament is still seen as being um, uh, sort of... uh, it's the, the unforgivable the, Yes, the, the thing you can't do, you have to step down. Mm. Um, I mean, it's John Profumo steps down, not because he had an affair with Christine Keeler, but because he lied to Parliament and he was yeah. caught out lying. Mm. So the, the issue of lying to Parliament um, is actually a, an issue of the highest moral order within our government structure, which is why this is so serious. I mean, in this instance, the committee, which um, had seven members, four of whom were members of his party, um, I think the majority of whom were actually committed and ardent Brexiteers. So they were hardly people who you could say they have um, a, a kind of a personal prejudice mm. against him. They concluded that he had lied to Parliament knowingly, um, and, and that was what he was being sanctioned for. Now, of course, again, the, the penalty that um, in the end they're recommending, the 90-day suspension plus Losing withdrawal of a parliamentary yep. pass, yep. that wasn't the original penalty. So the original penalty, I think, was about a 20-day suspension, which was significant, but it suddenly seems um, much greater. That is because of the way he's spoken about the committee. So what Johnson has done is, having been found by the committee to have lied to Parliament, he has then dismissed the committee as being a kangaroo court and he's claimed prejudice. So they have massively increased the penalty, which is basically a result of his refusal to accept the process. So where we are today is not just the lying to Having Parliament, had a hand in setting up the process indeed, in the first place. Um, and then denying the validity of the kind of the investigation that's taken place. Now, I think that has real implications for leaders in a whole variety of areas mm. in that um, on the one hand, there is misconduct um, and whether that is acknowledged and found. And then there is seeking to demolish the processes that have exposed and identified that um, misconduct. That's a way of trying to avoid the consequence of it. Um, and it's a classic tactic. Boris Johnson has sought to rubbish the kind of the um, uh, committee on the grounds of prejudice um, uh, in order to be able to protect protect himself. And they have responded by saying, we are integral to the integrity of parliament, that mm. we can conduct these investigations. And therefore, um, in a sense, their, their integrity, um, their honour has been impugned by what he said. So that's increased the, the, the kind of penalty. It's very, it's very difficult, Phil, I think, for in church life, or in fact in any walk of life, to set up entirely, purely objective processes. Mm. Um, there, there are always going to be flaws and limitations. It seems to me the really important thing in church life, when complaints do arise 
and complaints are made or there are difficulties, is that we have established processes that everybody who's participating in can, can see what they are, can know how they work and can agree to them. And, and I think we've, we've all come across situations where actually there have been processes that have been opaque, that haven't been clearly thought through, that haven't been agreed by the parties. And that always leads to difficulties. So I think our plea is that when these sad situations do sometimes occur in church, and there have to be investigations or there have to be reports. Please, please, please make sure that everybody agrees on what is being done, who it's being done by, why it's being done, what the outcomes are. That's that's so important. Mm. We, we've got a sample complaints process. We can put the link on the show notes, which is a real help in that, mm. actually. Mm. But it's really essential that when these things arise, people are absolutely clear what the process is going to be. So it can't be undermined later. And I think a number of people have pointed out that um, – Boris Johnson's character and his relationship with the truth has been well known for a long period of time. Um, that actually um, it's easy to um, criticise Johnson, but actually those who've put him in place, those who've supported him, those who've wanted him. They knew him, what they were doing. They knew what they were mm. doing. And that happens in, in leadership, sadly, that people are put forward as leaders because they're seen to be able to achieve something or do something or they have a view that we agree with. And moral flaws in their character are, are, are overlooked. And that's happened in churches, that people who appear to be charismatic, strong leaders are put into position, despite the fact that people know that there are flaws mm. um, in, in the way that they relate and their relationship with the truth mm. and their behaviour towards others. But yet what they're able to achieve um, is seen as being justifying um, uh, overlooking that behaviour. And, and this is surely a warning to us uh, kind of, of, of that. And I think from a, from a gospel perspective, every human process of investigating is flawed. There, there can be a lack of knowledge, there can be a bias, there can be a, a, a sort of a not an impartiality. Um, it seems in some ways here Boris Johnson was able to kind of resign to try to avoid the consequences of that. Well, the Bible tells us that ultimately God will judge everyone. There will be no escape from his judgment. And because he is omniscient and knows everything, because he is utterly impartial, there'll be no escaping um, his verdict. His judgment will be absolutely fair in the light of all of the known facts. And actually at a human level, we were thinking of that in relation to this abortion case, humanly we never know absolutely everything. We, we never know all of the thinkings of a human heart, all of the circumstances on someone. We're, we're never completely free of prejudices and pre-convictions in the way that we judge, but we can be absolutely confident that, that will not be the case with God, which is why his judgment is the point at which uh, right is done. In this life, we can only partially aspire towards right, but in the end, a true justice will be done. Judgment is a comfort, isn't it? I think sometimes we're fearful of judgment as Christians. Mm. And of course, there is no fear because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Mm. But actually more than that, the judgment of God is a comfort mm. in a broken world that wrongs will be will be dealt with. And, and I think, yeah. And justice will ultimately yeah. be done. Yeah. Absolutely, the Bible. It's the great comfort for victims. Mm. So, I mean, in the Bible... Uh, it, it, to persecuted Christians, to those who have been utterly mistreated um, by the society around them, whether that's being marginalised or even being put to death, the hope is Jesus will return and justice will will be done. Yeah. Well, we were going to talk about the ashes, but we are thoroughly out of time. So I think there are will... quite a few ashes tests. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm sure we, we, can, we can come back to Bow's Ball perhaps uh, another yeah, week. Can't uh, wait. John, Adrian, thank you so much uh, for talking about the news uh, this week. And we look forward to being with you again soon. If you've enjoyed the podcast, uh, do rate, leave a review, and we'll speak to you again soon. Thank you.